brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at MIDI Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. I didn't know anything was wrong until the police arrived. As it turned out, Henry had been missing for 12 hours. His wife had left the front porch light on for his expected late arrival, as usual, and nestled into bed. But when she awoke the next morning, the sheets beside her were still folded flat. Hallway shouts went unanswered, as did phone calls. There was no truck in the driveway, and after a search of the house proved fruitless, she called the police to file a missing persons report. Our rural town is small. Population 2,723. And because of the far proximity from large cities, we have no team to rally behind during professional sporting events. So the pillar of the community is, and always has been, the local high school team, where fans arrive in droves to support the kids no matter the sport. Because of this outpouring of support, everyone in town knows Henry. Not only did he attend every game with gloves fashioned to resemble cougar paws, but he also had been the school custodian since the Cougars won the championship in 91. The town adored him. I adored him. So, you can imagine my frustration when three sheriff's deputies made loops around my property while the sheriff, portly and stone-faced as ever, interrogated me about the truck they found across the road from my driveway. I told you, Henry's always parked there so my muddy driveway wouldn't get his truck dirty. I don't know why his truck is still there. What do you mean by that? The sheriff asked incredulously. My heating unit was acting up. It made rattling noises and the house smelled like gasoline so I needed someone to take a look. You know Henry does have jobs around town so I called him and asked him if he would look at it. Did he? I suppose. I wasn't home. Me and some bodies watched NFL at Hooligans until late, and before you ask, no, I didn't drive drunk. So, you saw him? No. The sheriff grunted and scratched his stubbly chin. If you never saw him, then how did you know he came by? Because Henry left the back door unlocked. Oh, and he also forgot to lift up the attic ladder. When I came back inside, the house was freezing. 
How did he get in? I reminded him where to find the spare key. So you trust him? You two are friends? Absolutely. It may seem strange, but I've known Henry my whole life. I allowed him to do the same thing the last two times he's done work in my house. Let himself inside my home. Once was the patch of some drywall, and the other time he replaced the sink basin in the guest bathroom. I trust him. His last known location, and this is coming from his wife too, is this house. Your house. And now he's vanished. I glowered at him and lifted myself from the couch. Are you saying I'm a suspect? No, he said with a trace of laughter. I didn't believe him. He lifted from the recliner and patted my shoulder. We're questioning everyone. Part of the job. Did you see his truck when you soberly came home last night? From what your deputy said earlier, it was parked near the cattle gate. I came back from hooligans in the other direction. So no, I didn't see it. Had I seen it, I probably would have called you myself. When did you return from the bar? Last night. Probably midnight or one. If I contact those buddies of yours, the ones from the bar, they'll corroborate your story? Yes, sir. I hope you do call them. He nodded rapidly, an acknowledgement of disbelief about most, if not all of the things I told him. He hitched his belt up under his belly and plodded out of my living room and toward the porch. Before the front door could close on him, he caught the knob, then poked his head through the threshold. Before I go, I gotta ask, do you believe in coincidences? I palmed the back of my neck. Um, I guess so. Why? When did you buy this house? Last summer. Couldn't pass up on the price. He edged the shoulder into the foyer, followed by a boot, then looped a thumb in his pocket. When I was a boy, about nine or ten, a little girl in my class went missing. Everyone, and I mean everyone, went out searching for that little girl. They even used hounds at one point, but she was never found. Then, a few decades later, a 70-year-old woman went missing. Food still in the pantry, milk still in the fridge, cash, credit cards, car keys, all in a purse. Poof, just gone. Never found her either. Tragic, really it is, but how does that involve me? Because both those people went missing while they lived in this house. There was a hitch in my breath. Cement shoes, hammering heart, tunnel vision. The sheriff tossed me a sidelong glance. And now we have Henry at this house one minute, then poof, gone like the other two. So, do you believe in coincidences? Oh, that's strange, Sheriff, I'll admit. But I have no part in this. Can I give my buddy's info now? My mind reeled as the sheriff returned to his cruiser with the names and numbers of the friends I were with the night before. He was soon followed by the other deputies that had been scouring through the pasture and thickets for any trace of the missing custodian. I wanted to join the search. I really did. But, despite my factual answers to the sheriff, I believed he pinned me as a suspect from the get-go. After a few beers to calm my nerves, I dialed my buddies one by one to explain about the possible phone call from the authorities 
only for each to inform me they had already been contacted in the last 10 minutes. Panic set in. What started as confusion had morphed into something much worse. I was a suspect in the disappearance of Henry, a beloved figure in our town. Also, there was something troubling about the sheriff's anecdote. Not one, but two disappearances had a common thread, and I was living in it. I doubt I blinked for the next hour during my online search for any evidence that could prop up what he had told me. That my house was cursed or haunted. That a construction of wood and metal and screws could instigate the disappearance of a human being. I clicked and read and bookmarked any pertinent information. As it turned out, or perhaps because he didn't know, the sheriff had understated the truth. My research informed me that my home, a ranch-style single story with a vaulted ceiling and two-car garage, had been built in 1964 by a palmy banker. He built it for his wife and family that eventually expanded to include four daughters. I came across a write-up that portrayed them as a wholesome group, daughter who enjoyed ballet, a homemaker wife who could cook a fierce Thanksgiving turkey, a proud father who enjoyed barbecues and church services. But all that changed when he claimed his bedroom window flashed with celestial light one early morning, and upon further inspection, he discovered a hole that had been burned in the roof. Lightning, the article quoted what the banker had said. I thought it was lightning. The following week, he left for a three-day business trip. When he returned, his wife and four daughters were gone. Authorities at the time dispelled the notion of murder or kidnapping. They blamed it on a fleeing wife who suffered through a furtive, abusive relationship, and they never did any meaningful investigation to support alternative claims. The banker's body was found the day after the investigation was called off, hanging from a backyard oak. I found several articles dated a few years later about a young girl that went missing while her mother packed outdated Christmas decorations from the attic to be stored in the shed, going back and forth between the two for an hour until the joyous laughter of her daughter became an eerie silence. Gone. Taken right from under a nose by a pervert or some maniac. This was one of the stories that Sheriff had told me. I read on, shocked at the words in the newspaper, quotes from grieving family members begging for a safe return that never occurred. Minutes later, I found an article about an elderly woman the sheriff was not exaggerating. Food still in the pantry, milk still in the fridge, cash and credit cards and the keys to an old Volvo were all found in a purse. Poof, the sheriff had said. No wonder the home was at such a low price when I purchased it. Unsolved mysteries tend to bring down real estate value. I remember the realtor giving me the spiel. Never had a rodent problem, never had a leaky roof, never had a bug infestation, Solid foundation, plenty of space, and it could be yours for such a low price, she told me. Be a homeowner. Come on, a millennial homeowner is a rarity these days. Her wily speech had worked. I felt stupid, duped into the purchase of a cursed residence. Strangely, I didn't believe in the supernatural, and I'd never personally seen a ghost or phantom, or one of those floating orbs of light. To me, it was a way to energize tourism, 
feast on people's nightmares. But on that day, I was caught up in something unusual. It's one thing to read about the history, but now police were showing up to my home with guileful smiles, prodding eyes that surveyed for evidence, skepticism when I spoke. The nightmare was no longer in the past. It was later that day and the loud knocks made me wince. Two deputies stood on my porch, a pair of tall muscle heads that were obviously sent to intimidate. One more look around, they asked if I would allow it. I had nothing to hide, so their request was granted. This circuit around my home was much more in depth than the one around my property, and as I followed them around like a lost puppy, they upturned containers and leafed through my clothes and ransacked every cabinet. I was annoyed, sure, but felt I was helping the investigation, thinking when they realized I wasn't involved, then they could focus their attention elsewhere. Sir, we're about done. Do you have a basement or attic? Attic. Mind if we go ahead, I said. Be my guest. Let me know if the heating unit is coughing again. The attic ladder was unfolded from the ceiling and stabilized in the hallway. After lighting his maglite, the bigger of the two deputies began his creaky climb into the dark void above. When the darkness swallowed him, and the only sign of his location was the occasional flicker of light seen through the access opening, the second deputy planted a foot on a grooved rung and rubbed the bridge of his nose. There was a metallic rattle, then a large wrench protruding from the opening followed by the looming presence of the attic lawman. He called out to his partner. Got a toolbox with Henry's name on it. Cuff him. In a blur of motion, the officer near me whipped my arm behind my head in one swift motion. In the corner of my eye, I saw him remove plastic restraints from his belt. I cringed in pain and shouted my innocence as I had already told the sheriff Henry had inspected my HVAC the night before, but was blatantly ignored. Yet, in the commotion, I heard a deep wallop from above. When my arm was released, it wasn't because of my indignation. A horrific shriek blasted from the attic. The yell of a man in pain. An odd strobe effect was all I could see in the inky square above the ladder as the officer's flashlight spun and twitched in the darkness above. Then, all sound stopped. The officer beside me gazed up the ladder. Jones? Jones, what's wrong? Silence. He turned to me, but his mind was in a deliberation. Sir, I didn't do anything. Shut up. Arms through here. Now! Panicked, the officer used the plastic, disposable cuffs on my right wrist and looped the excess through a metal ladder hinge before fastening my left wrist. He raced upstairs to his friend. My shouts were ignored. My pleas lost in the frenzied mind of a spooked cop. The creak of the rungs moaned in agony against his weight, but were barely audible against the beckoning calls to his lost brother in blue. He dipped the top of his head into the lightless loft, then lifted his torch, spinning the beacon in a 360 degree angle. Once satisfied, he ascended the ladder. Darkness enveloped him. I tugged against the handcuffs, but it was pointless. I was tethered to the hinge. Oh my god, uttered a feeble voice from above. There was a thundering noise, footfall, then another scream of agonized pain. 
Unable to believe what happened, I stood in stupid amazement at the featureless black square, waiting for the pair to materialize and joke about the size of a rat or cockroach. All a joke, a trick to play in the stupid, shackled suspect. My throat seized into itself as I waited, gaping at the nothing above my head. The muscle heads never appeared. The void of my attic seemed to swallow a pair of deputies right in front of my eyes, and yet I still didn't believe it. I jerked madly at my restraints, trying to jostle the ladder into a creaky surrender, but the screws held firm. It felt as if the frame of black was staring back at me, a window into oblivion. I started to weep. Frantic calls for help went unanswered, until I heard a voice. Outside, a car door slammed. Before I swiveled my head to the window, my voice rose in a shrill pitch, begging for assistance. The front door was kicked in, and the sheriff turned the corner, gun drawn. What the hell is going on? Where's Jones and Anderson? They're upstairs. Before he could set a worn boot on a rung, I shouted, No, don't. What happened? Something... I don't know, something is up there, cut me loose. Uncertainty was swept away when he saw the terror in my face and picked up on the trembling in my voice. In a moment of judgment, he scratched under his chin and alternated with sights of me and the attic's maw. He gave a quick shrug. His pocket knife released my hands from the link and I explained what happened as efficiently as possible. He took in a lungful of air and removed his maglite. Your house, your lead, the sheriff said as he thrust the flashlight to my chest. I'm not going. I don't know what... Sounds like my deputies were injured. For all I know, you've set traps up there. You go first. He flicked his pistol a little, and I started up the ladder, my new plastic bracelets scratching the grooved threads of each rung. By the time I was on the boundary of where the hallway light met the obscurity of the attic, I was shaking. Hurry up, it was men of families, the sheriff called out from behind. I plunged into the murky frontier and immediately cast every wall and light with rapid turns of the torch. When one side was clear, I spun around to make another corner visible, then another. I got a whiff of natural gas, the smelly McCaptain doing his job, the smell of rotten eggs, sulfur, hell. The sheriff was now on the third step of the ladder. Well? Nothing. What? There's nothing. It's just an attic. A series of rafters ribbed the area above me, and struts rose from the attic floor to supportive beams, sending wicked shadows around the space with every turn of my wrist. Joists emerged out of fluffy pink stuff at random intervals, but were otherwise covered by heaps of the rosy clouds scattered throughout the attic. Pads of the stuff overwhelmed almost every spot my flashlight landed. I found a bundle of galvanized pipes that flowed into the heating unit. The metal casing was flipped open and it emitted a tiny echo when it thumped. I took a step deeper into the attic and my foot clanked against the old toolbox, the wrenches and pliers shuffling from the movement. The sheriff groaned his way up the ladder, then joined me on the plywood board that flanked the ladder opening. He removed his cell phone and turned on the flashlight app. With both lights running at once, 
Only small drifts of darkness hugged the corners. Everything else was visible. You son of a... Was this some kind of trick? I swear, Sheriff, they came up here. Both of them. He balanced his way to a narrow strip of plywood, holding his phone at an angle to inspect the mounts of pink to his right. I took a step on an exposed joist and kept my balance with an overhead collar tie. Careful, don't fall through the ceiling, the sheriff warned. I looked around, amazed at the volume of vibrant color. What's all the pink stuff? Insulation, fiberglass insulation to be exact. I've never seen so much installed before, kind of an overkill. It looks so delicate, like cotton candy. I reached for it. Hey, don't touch it, your hands will itch for hours. Don't touch it? I asked, bending down to get a more solid look. Sounds dangerous. No, it's perfectly safe if... The narrow plank of wood gave way and the sheriff tumbled into the fluffy mass below. As I approached, he mumbled a string of vulgarity and was busy rolling on his back like an upended turtle. His palm caught a joist and began lifting himself, leveraging his weight with his knee. Then, he let out a blood-curdling scream. He tossed his phone and began yelling for help, his arms groping and reaching out for me while the shine from his whirling phone stroked through the air. To correct the dimness and my bewilderment, I pointed my flashlight to the ailing officer and watched as his attempts to lift himself onto a joist was hindered. He grasped the wooden support and strained to roll over. When he pivoted, there was no longer cloth covering his back, but a viscous tar substance growing taut against his bare skin. I thought he had dug his heel into the pillowy fluff to gain traction, but upon a longer inspection, witnessed the fluff engulf his boot, rolling over his lower leg like clouds in the wind. By the time I set the flashlight on the ground and balanced my way down the narrow lumber, half of his body was submerged under knolls of pink. My hand embraced his, and after anchoring myself to the beam with another arm, pulled the sheriff with all of my might. He was coughing and sputtering blood, not yelling words per se, but hoarse, onomatopoeias of agony. One arm that had previously been embedded suddenly elevated into the open air, but when I reached out for it, and the muscles were steaming and pulsing. He continued to rise out of the blushy lumps as I hauled him closer to freedom. Then, the pink stuff pulled back. His hand was sucked out of my grasp. When the sheriff finished this plunge, his rotund face slipping beneath the swelling insulation, he was still and no longer calling out. I tiptoed along the beam and fetched my flashlight at the mouth of the opening before my descent. A faint mechanical whirring noise caught my attention. The smell of natural gas grew strong again and gave me an idea. Before I could find out if the insulation was sentient enough to chase its prey, I raced down the ladder and folded it up. I stood on a chair and duct taped the narrow slits of the opening and hinges, then closed every ceiling register in my home. I duct taped an ice pack around my thermostat, then set the temperature to 90. Before I exited, I stuffed a lighter in my pocket. I went to the shed and collected a pair of five gallon gasoline jugs that were filled to the brim. My plan was to wait five hours before I incinerated my home, but calls were streaming from the ownerless police cars in my driveway.
so I knew my time was limited. I waited an hour, then two. On the third, I heard my name and address on the radio, so I went to work. I spent nearly ten minutes dousing the pine straw on my roof with the gasoline, but saved enough to crudely fashion a Molotov cocktail from a strip of cloth and an empty beer bottle. I lit the cloth and tossed the flaming projectile onto my roof, just as the wailing sirens became audible. The fire caught and incinerated the pine straw in an instant. Without warning, a massive explosion obliterated half of my roof, shattering every window of my home and knocking down the east wall. Debris rained from above, and I kept under an oak tree to avoid injury. The fire took and ate its way through the attic, and ultimately my entire house. As the flames licked up the sides of my house, and the glow of the blaze burned with an unparalleled magnificence, I was handcuffed and violently tossed into the back of a deputy's cruiser. The officers watched the fire, reporting to the dispatcher about arson and homicide, begging for a fire truck as soon as possible. Looking back, I'm not sure which was more strenuous, that day or the ordeal that followed. I was treated as a murderer until a vigilant search of the charred remains of my house was finalized. No bodies were found. Refusal to believe my story was common, but I endured. After three years of court battles, I am a free man. Too many inconsistencies, I later found out many jurors said, not enough evidence or motive. The reason I'm telling this story is simple. Last week, a man approached me in a diner and slid into the booth across from me. He was pale and twitchy, nervously eyeing out the window like he was being followed. He told me he was serving the Army National Guard several years ago when his unit was mobilized for a covert operation. Their job, he explained, was to cordon off a small quarantine zone, keep anyone from entering. Simple. Routine. He leaned in close when he told me the quarantine zone was the spot where my house burned and the surrounding field. He was assigned the mission the day after everything transpired. Too bad it didn't belong to me anymore, as the property had been eminent domained by the government and seized immediately after my arrest. Nervously, the stranger said that scientists wearing hazmat suits began collecting wads of bright pink material and sequestering them to steel containers. Fellow soldiers in his National Guard unit joked they were protecting a cotton candy stand. He said in a wistful tone that his fellow soldiers weren't joking anymore. When I asked him why he was telling me all this, he grimaced. Before I could slide out of the booth and leave the stranger, he clung to my wrist. I'm trying to tell you, he said with a fearful quiver. It got out. The pink stuff got out. It could be anywhere. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. Judy. <laughs> 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.